Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is one of my most favorite and most considered broadcasters, a voice familiar to millions and yet whom we know relatively little about which I think is exactly how she likes it. Extensive Google searches throw up very little about her, despite 30-plus years working very much in the public eye, with award-winning stints hosting The Breakfast Show alongside Nikki Campbell and The Lunchtime Show on Five Live, as well as her work for Radio 4. One of seven children born to Irish Catholic parents in Liverpool, she rose through the ranks of the BBC and since leaving Five Live in 2014 has been hosting her own daily afternoon show on LBC, getting a chance to exercise journalistic muscles and opinions previously contained by years of BBC impartiality. Today I am thrilled that she's made an exception to offer up answers instead of questions and even happier that we get to do this face to face. Sheila Fogarty, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kate. It's lovely to be here. There is so little about you online, Sheila Fogarty. How the hell in 30 years have you managed that? Do you know, I, it's not really a massively a conscious decision. Um, I'm probably, because I'm so radio, really, I probably just didn't get into the sort of visuals of, of everything in the way that maybe TV presenters did. I'm also not, even as a kid, my mum used to joke that, and, and there's, there's evidence of it in photographs, that whenever someone took a picture of me, I would hold the end of my skirt and start to play with it anxiously because I didn't like having my picture taken as a kid. I'm not massively keen on it now, to be no, honest. I, hear I don't you. know why. I don't know why, because I'm an outgoing person and I'm a happy person and a smiley person. But I've got, remember that episode of Friends where Chandler and Monica go to have their engagement picture taken and Chandler just goes, <clears throat> he can't smile. Grimaces, yeah. When somebody says to me, smile for the camera, I'm like, D-school photo face. I hate it. I have a terrible photo <laughs> face. So maybe that's made me inhibited about it. But I'm not, I don't intend, I don't sort of aim to be mysterious. So ask me anything. Well, I will actually, and I will with, with license. Thank you. Because I followed you for years. I think we've interacted a few times on Twitter. Um, you feel like a friend in my ear. You are somebody that I turn to, uh, uh, certainly in, in most recent years, a lot. Because whenever there's a big story, I trust you to take me through it, to give me the facts to raise the right questions and to make me think and not tell me what to think. Oh, that's nice. And I think that is that is the nuance of great journalism yeah. as opposed to these kind of shouty shock jocks that tell you what to think. Well, it's funny because when LBC first approached me about working for them, I was like, are you sh are you, sh are you sure? Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm not a shock jock. No. And I don't really have that in me. I, in, interestingly, though, in the seven years that I've been with them. Oh, it's changed a lot, the network. It's changed, but I've changed as well doing it. I, as in, I've exercised more muscles. And I thought, if you're going to do it, you know, if you're going to shed some of those BBC skins, then do it. You know, don't half do it. So I was never going to become a shock jock by any stretch of the imagination. But I do take people on a bit, you know. And You do? Well, you have to sometimes, don't you? But you, you do it so politely and you do it so well that 
I always come away impressed thinking I, I, I was, you know, you know, like Christians wear those bracelets that say, what would Jesus do? I, I want to be a bit more like, what would Sheila, <laughs> what would do? Sheila do? Honestly, your consideration <laughs> in everything that you raise is, is, is really smart. And, and, it, and, and I think in so many ways, it comes from years of constraint at the BBC. I think oh, it forces you to consider. It does force you to consider. And it and I'm glad that I had those years as well because you do, you know, I remember having a private conversation when I was still presenting The Breakfast Show at Five Live with Nikki. Um, and I had a private conversation, which I know you won't mind me sharing, with, with Ed Balls. We were doing an event together um, about stammering because I had a little stammer when I was a kid. And before it, he said to me, ever the politician, you know, he said to me, you know, you're one of the few presenters who, um, he, well, he thought, you know, you're one of the few BBC presenters whose politics I just can't call. And I said, good. And I wasn't going to tell him anything, you know. And he said, but you must have, you know, with your background, of course, my background, Liverpool, Irish, working class, seven kids, da, 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 da. You know, he just assumed, why aren't you Labour? Why aren't you Labour? And I said, I'm not party political at all. And honestly, you could see, because of course, they're all so party political, you know. It's, it's, I think it's, it's I, in their blood. Yeah. yeah, he couldn't understand the words that came out of my mouth. I said, I'm just not party political. And I said, I've voted all over the place. And you could see him going, why would you do that? <laughs> How come? You know, he couldn't quite grasp that that was a possibility. But do you know what? I mean, the last few years, extraordinary times that we've lived through, Sheila. Mm. I think extraordinary times to be a storyteller. Has it reasserted in you your conviction to tell great stories? Yeah, absolutely. But it, I mean, I tell stories, but I... But more in this job, I'm almost the conduit for stories, really. I still tell them a bit when you do journalism about particular topics and stuff. And I've got some topics that are passions of mine, but it absolutely has. Are you talking about the pandemic in particular? Talking about all of it. I mean, when you think about, you know, since 2020, we've lived through a pandemic, times of which were the most extraordinary. Unimaginable, yeah. And now we find ourselves, you know, observing the most horrific war in Europe mm. uh, with, with the, you know, the Russian assault on, on, the, on Ukraine. And there is an information war that is being waged. And I think that gives value to journalism in a way that we've probably forgotten to value it yeah. in, in recent times because of the fluff and the showbiz and the hacking and everything else that sits around it. But it's serious business. And I'll come back to the business of this period. I, I was conscious. People were often ringing me in distress or confusion or sorrow or isolation, loneliness. And, and we were there was only one story that we were covering, and it was that every day in all its variations, you know. But it was the only story. And it was a story, it was the only story I've ever covered where every single person is experiencing the same story. Mm. Now, they might be experiencing it differently, but they're all experiencing the same story. What, well, one story in particular that I'd covered previously had prepared me really well for this, which was Hillsborough. Now, the whole country didn't experience Hillsborough, really. Um, Liverpool certainly did, and anybody who supported the fans did. But th that covering that story, both as a very young journalist and then over years, really, over three decades, it taught me an awful lot about... I mean, it was the first story I ever covered, really. And I was in Radio Merseyside on the day it happened. And, you know, it was it taught me an awful lot about listening. It taught me a lot about... Uh, how important broadcast and newspaper um, offices at the time, you know, it's all online now, of course, and you can access them all day and night, but how important those local and hubs. national journalistic hubs were for people to come to and speak to and give their story to. However that's happening, it's important that it happens. And it taught me about the truth. 
and how important it is to kind of try your level best to get. uphold it and to get to it. And but most, you know, the, all all kinds of elements in that story. I didn't realize it until I was doing it really 30 years later, prepared me for the for covering the pandemic and listening to people during the pandemic because there was a, a lot of trauma there. Sure, it's exactly that connection that I made researching your story, uh, which brings me really nicely to my first question for you. You were temping at Radio Merseyside the day that, yes, that Hillsborough happened, that... So many men, women, children went to see a football match and, and 97 of them did not come home. Yeah. That should never have happened. Of course. You heard firsthand by answering the phones there, the accounts from the people on the ground about what was happening. Mm. And you have, you've been party to that conversation ever since. Mm. So I wanted to explore the importance of that and the, the fact that it is a 30-year fight for justice, but also to ask you what other truly important conversations you've been privy to or a party to that have been life-changing? Well, on Hill... I mean, should I start with Hillsborough? Let's Why start not? with Hillsborough. Um, you said there are... You know, you're right to say that I got a lot of calls on... You know, I was taking calls like everybody else was in the in the station. Bear in mind, I wasn't a journalist at that point. I was about to start my journalistic training. You were temping, I was temping you? before I went to, to do my BBC training. And I just went in, I was working on reception and in the newsroom doing, you know, literally newsroom support stuff. And I popped in on the Saturday, I first heard about Hillsborough in town, I was in town shopping and I overheard there was a guy, there used to be a guy who had a fruit stall um, in the centre and he, had, he always had a transistor radio up really loudly with the match on, you know, whichever match it was. And I could see loads of people around the stall uh, talking to him and you know or talking to each other and you know, you know you can see something is odd and not quite right so I went to nosy natural journalist yeah. went but you know something big's happening when people watch the radio right yeah, exactly. when people watch the radio something big yeah, is going down all, they were all going over to it you yeah know, and and I thought what's that and then I I, I I said to the woman there what's going on and she said oh apparently there's been a um a wall or something has fallen down at the at the um the Liverpool game and I thought okay so I just went to the station straight away just to find out really what was going on and it would have been about now bear in mind the thing happened at three three o'clock yeah three in the afternoon um and this would have been about four four fifteen so a good hour had gone by so by the time i got to the station they already had a death figure of about 25 26 people and i walked into reception and the woman who was on reception said to me oh great did someone call you and i said no i'm just coming in to find out what's happening and she said get get behind here so I was behind reception and then that's when the whole thing just grew and grew and grew and grew if you know before our eyes really and so that would have been four o'clock in the afternoon and by about eight in the evening this is all pre-twitter by about eight in the evening fans Liverpool fans were coming from Sheffield and they were getting off their coaches and their trains and going straight to Radio Merseyside straight to Radio City and straight to the Echo to tell the truth their to tell, truth to tell the truth because they already knew what was happening yeah and they were coming as individuals. They weren't en masse with a story to tell that would, you know, cover their asses. They were coming to tell because they, they knew. They knew. I knew. They knew. I knew because they told me. I knew what was happening. And then as the days went on and the Sun newspaper had Hillsborough the truth and, you know, all the politicians were lining up to say hooligans and foreign newspapers were doing the same. I'll never forget there was a... I just graduated in, foreign, in uh, Spanish and French and... The news editor at the time said, you, you speak a few languages, don't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, come with me. And he sat me at a desk with a phone and said, you're the foreign desk. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, 
how, how glamorous. Um, <laughs> but he said, you're the foreign desk because we were getting calls from all over the world about this story. And I'll never forget the front page of the Spanish newspaper called El País, which is a fairly highish brow paper. And it had one of the awful images from the Leppings Lane. And it said at the top, bestias ingleses, English Basically, beasts, yeah. you know. And I thought, God, you know, terrible. I mean, obviously, most Brits weren't going to see that, thank God. But and certainly most. But it's not the point. The, narr not the, point, the narrative no. should not have been there because no, they were. But it was there straight They away. were victims. Yeah, absolutely. And but what was interesting is all of those people coming in and telling us their story. That didn't, I didn't go home that night. Nobody went home that night. I went back home around about two the next day and we all just stayed there and kept the doors open and pe of the station and people were coming in all day, all night to tell us what they'd seen and what happened to them. And by, by the time the Sun newspaper had put that, that front page out, I was on reception again and uh, people were coming, I think it was the Tuesday, people were coming in with their Sun newspaper and banging it on the desk. And by the end of the day, I had a stack about this big of Sun newspapers next to me. And people were just saying, do something about that, do something about that. And Roger Phillips is a great, he's just retired actually, but was a great broadcaster then and carried on for years and really took the, you know, rightly took the side of the, of the Hillsborough families, in t as in took the part of, gave them space to have their gave campaign. Gave them a voice. Gave them a voice, yeah. Yeah. And they were all coming in saying, I want to talk to Roger, I want to talk to Roger. You know, he was the person that they knew would, would hear them. It was just day after day after day after day of people either coming in or calling in and saying what they had seen or saying what had happened to them or responding to the reaction to them. Um, and in, in amongst it, there was some, you're talking about conversations. Not all of those conversations were on air. I had an amazing conversation with, um, I mean, because I wasn't on air at the time. No. You know, but, I mean, subsequently, I, as a journalist, I'd covered Hillsborough loads of times, you know, the fight for justice loads of you times. You still do, Sheila. You've I do. Become, uh, no, I do. You've become a, you've become a megaphone uh, well, for those families so. and, and all of the people that suffered that loss. And you've never stopped telling that story. And you've done it in such a considered and smart way fashion and I applaud you for that well, thank you. because it's 30 years of constantly keeping the volume turned up on it yeah and and but the family did that you know the families did that mm. they are they are like one family but the families did that which is and again but but you're right lots of journalists ignored it so you know when when the headlines burn out you know they move off to the next story somebody has to keep yeah. the attention well, somebody has to keep making people yeah. feel compelled to listen well radio merseyside absolutely did that mm -hmm. and a good friend of mine pauline mcadam she's just finished a six part she'd been doing it over a couple of years because for legal reasons she had to press pause on them but I did, anyone who wants to know the truth about Hillsborough should listen to this podcast series. It's a six-part podcast series on BBC Sounds. One of the conversations I had in that week has never left me. And it was because of what the upshot of it was. It was a kind of happy upshot in a sad story. This man came in, in his, probably in his, well, no, I, I know how old he was. He told me he was in his 70s, 74. He came in, and I'm just a kid, really. I've only just graduated. You know, and he comes into the, to, to the reception and he said, um, uh, is... Uh, is Roger, is Roger here? And I said, he is, but he's on the, and with everyone looking for Roger, I said, he's on the radio, he's on air at the moment, can I help at all? And he said, um, I, I was at the match on Saturday and I said, you okay? Because a lot of it, we had counsellors, priests, you know, So carers. traumatic what people saw. People forgot that most of the victims were children. Yeah. They were under 18 yeah. and they were, they had blood alcohol tests as we now know. Well, I knew that on the Saturday evening because their families were telling me, you know, so I, I knew that. 
hours after Hillsborough. Loads of people did, and then lots of people just changed the narrative to suit the, their purposes. But this man said, he was 74, lovely old, older guy at the time, you know, he had like an old, old man look. He told me that he'd been in the Leppings Lane because we just wanted to check. If people came in, it's because they wanted to talk, you know. And I said, do you have anyone at home? And he said, I have my wife, but I told her a fib. I told her I was somewhere else and that I was fine. And he said, and I am fine because I'm all right. He said, I'm covered in bruises and da, da, da. And I said, what is it? How can we help you? You know, and he said, um, I, I, I'm trying to find these two lads who helped me. And I don't know. <laughs> don't be crying. You'll set no, me off. No. And he said, he said, I'm trying to find these two lads who helped me. And he said, I don't know who they are. And they threw me over the gate, you know, the fence. And he said, and the only thing I can tell you about them is that they kept calling me Pops, and and which isn't really a very Scouse word for a granddad or not, not, he didn't think so. And I didn't think so. And he said, that's all I remember. And I said, and I said, well, I think you might be in luck because I had literally 10 minutes before heard a man talking to Roger Phillips on the phone in. And, and I didn't remember the detail of the, the boy was described, the young lad was describing, but I remembered the word Pops. And it was literally 10 minutes before. Mm -hmm. So I said, come, come through. So I sat him down with the people in the, there was a room where people could go and talk and be given a cup of tea and wait. And I ran into Roger's team and I said, three calls ago, or however many calls ago, this guy, young, have you got his number? Have you got his name? Yeah, got his number. Rang him and I said, I think I might have this man that you helped with me. And he said, I'm coming down, I'm coming down. So he came down to Radio Mercy. So it took about an hour. Reunion. I know you're crying. Don't make me cry. Because and because Hillsborough is all about loss and you forget about those moments. Mm -hmm. Because it, those people went to see a football match. Yeah. Nobody was there for anything other than that. Yeah, exactly. And everybody tried to help one another. And to hear that... Beautiful. It's just a chink of lovely humanity Honestly, in amongst it all. Really lovely. I was at the 20th anniversary in Anfield uh, doing live broadcasting of is it. Is this when you did your 10 minutes with no guests? Oh, that was at LBC. You were brilliant, Sheila. I think that's some of the most powerful broadcasting I've ever heard. Really? Honestly, yeah. Oh, well, that's nice of you. It was that. wonderful. And just to, to give context to anyone who's listening, but you did 10 minutes where you recapped everything that you understood Hillsborough to be. And how the families had always used the law and the institutions that had failed them to try to put it right. Yeah. They never put a foot wrong. And, and how they kept that discipline up. I can't say for sure that I wouldn't have been putting bricks through people's windows by that but point. They didn't. Because, and they never did. They outclassed everybody. 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 And you you told their story and you did it in a way. I can't remember where I was. I pulled over. I was driving. I just stopped and I remember just staring at my steering wheel, listening to you. Really? And crying. Um, because I cried afterwards. Not because <laughs> Because it was, it was such an injustice. It was. And it's taken so long. And... Everybody, everybody plays a part in this and, you, and you've played an integral part. And I think as a journalist, I wonder when you look back at that, being a party to those conversations and then seeing the, the misreporting, the injustice, I wonder if that set the fire in your belly that continues to burn to this day and made you the broadcaster and journalist I, that you are. I wonder, it might well have. And, and I remember when I... In the, that was April, wasn't it, Hillsborough? And then I started my BBC course in September, so the interviews were in, intervening. And I remember my old Spanish professor writing, I asked him to, writing a reference for the course, you know, and by which t time Hillsborough had already happened mm. and I'd included in my letter to him that I'd covered it as a support staff, really, you know. And he said, I think Sheila will have learnt everything there is to learn about the good 
the bad and the indifferent in journalism on from this very story. Yeah. And yes, and I think he was right. So well I think, observed. <laughs> I think if you are immersed in a story and you are a party to what you were, and then you see what's going on, that that must give you um, a determination to constantly question yeah, and, and hold to account. And, and you know, I said on the day, um, I think it was the day that, uh, I know said Boris Johnson, David Cameron, it was 2012, the Hillsborough Independent Panel report come out and David Cameron apologised in the House of Commons. I don't know mm, if you remember yes, that. Yes, I do. And he outlined everything that that, pa that panel had found, you know. And I said on air, and I, there was, I'm at the BBC at the time, and my editor rightly said... I know you know the story and you have an understanding of the story, but you're broadcasting to people who don't as well. It was really good advice to make me really think before I... And also people forget. So you need to recap it. Completely, you need to yeah, it. yeah. And when, when Cameron, when the report had been outlined by Cameron and then he apologised and he did the whole thing beautifully, there was just a point where I suddenly thought this, <laughs> this is kind of pre, very pre-LBC, but there was a point where I just thought, it's in the parliamentary record now, what happened on that day. So now you can raise it, right? Screw this. I'm saying what I like, you know, and I yeah. said what I liked. And I just said, I only, I said from t today in that outline of what that report found and in Cameron's apology and everything, I learned one thing that I didn't know within two days of Hillsborough happening. I learned one thing only. Which was? Which was the numbers of people that could have been saved. That's all I learned. By the, pr practically by the evening of Hillsborough, Everything that was in that report was known. And it took 26 years, was it, before Maybe that came out? 20, yeah. whatever it was. And, you know, I just remember thinking, right, now's my moment. And I just said, you've got to, you have to understand that this was common knowledge. And not only was it common knowledge among survivors and families and scousers, it was common knowledge because within a year of Hillsborough happening, Lord Justice Taylor produced a report that, that said, said essentially the same yes, thing. Yes, he did. And you're like, why did, why did everybody forget that? Of course, there's relief and release in the truth being out there, but there's no accountability for it. There is no accountability, and that is, and there's no comfort. You can't, you can't replace what these people have lost. No, you can't. And it's not just the lives that they've lost; it's the years of fight, peace and of struggle, mind. the peace of All mind, lost peace of mind. I mean, yeah. a, a cab driver was driving me on the day of the independent panel. I was telling him what I was going to be reporting on that day, and he and he started to cry in the cab. And he said, I was there on the day with my brother. And he said, and I, I lost him for half an hour. Couldn't find him on the pitch. Found him on the pitch, injured, but he was alive, which is good. Uh, I said, don't don't worry. I said, you, you're going to hear today that the fans, you're going to hear again today that the fans were not to blame for this. And, and he said, that's so important to me. Sometimes in the middle of the night, I've wondered, I've thought, did we? Did we hurt each other? But that's what they did. Did we? Because they that's, sowed yeah. that seed. But also because we... <laughs> We're raised to believe what authority tells us. We're yeah. raised to believe that if the newspapers say it well, it, well, there must be some truth in it. On that question of authority, actually, one of the to me on the day that that um, Cameron gave that apology, one of the most interesting comments on the day in the debate that followed uh, was from the former attorney Dominic Grieve. He was the attorney general that gave the green light for the full independent panel, so for the inquest. Sorry, to take place the second set of inquests, and. He said, and I thought it was so shrewd and so wise, this Hillsborough and what happened and the institutions that contributed to what happened, both the event and the cover-up, shame us all. I'm paraphrasing it massively here, but he said they shame us all and it, we, need, we need to remind ourselves, and this is really contingent on events now, I think, we need to remind ourselves that 
the, the institutions that Britain trumpets about and says how British institutions are the strongest in democracies around the world, la, la, la. And to, in some senses they are. But he said the institutions have to serve the people and they certainly have no place harming people and lying about people and upending people's lives. That's not what they're for. They are there to serve people. And the institutions that were meant to serve people that day and beyond hurt them instead and knowingly hurt them. Grievously let them down. Really, but he was brilliant. And, and, and he said that this should be a warning to us all about our institutions, all of them, not just the ones involved in Hillsborough. And my God, was he right? Because look at our institutions at the moment. Yeah, I hope you're listening, Sue Gray. Yeah, and Dominic Grieve, come back. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you for, for sharing so much of that because to have played such an integral part in unearthing so many mistruths and correcting that, it's really important, Sheila. And as journalists, I think, you know, you start at the beginning of the, you know, the kind of the foothills of your career thinking you're going to be a great you know, purveyor of the truth and injustice. And actually very rarely do you get a chance to do that. And, yeah. you and have. to be honest, I'm not sure I unearthed anything. And and, I, and it's not false modesty on my part. I, did, I, I, I'm a good communicator. I'm good at getting stories told by people, if you see what I mean, helping them to tell their story, I am. But, I, but actually there were journalists like David Kahn in The Guardian, other journalists, there was a great Daily Mirror journalist. Um, yes, I know. Read, oh my God, to my shame. We've both got yeah. middle-aged brain that we can't remember people's brain fog. names. Brain fog. Forgive me, Mr. Reed of the Mirror. People like Roger I've mentioned. But I think the bit that you forget is when you come on air and you do 10 minutes on this, mm. we know you, we trust you. Not, the BBC, yeah. right? Yeah. And and we've heard you talk about this. We're familiar with your familiarity of this story. Mm -hmm. So when you say something, it carries great weight and responsibility. And I think we forget that sometimes. But I, I, mean, I take, as broadcasters, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, no, I, I do take that seriously on that yeah. story, very and I, seriously. And I, you know, I think that you were given great trust by the people and the families that sat around that story mm -hmm. and you never let them down. I hope not, I hope not. So important conversations, that's mm -hmm. probably one of the most significant. Yeah. What about in your own life? <gasps> 29, I'm 29 then, not now, 29, heartbroken, romance had ended. Also very confused because uh, a job I'd gone on, I'd, I was doing, hadn't worked out well. And it wasn't because of the job particularly, it was because of me. It was the first time in my life that I'd been really upend upended by sadness, really. And anyway, <laughs> relationship over, job I left, was in the middle of sorting out the next one. Uh, which turned out to be a, a, a job presenting the breakfast show at Radio Merseyside, which then led me to presenting full time, which was never my plan. So actually, all so very huge moments in yeah, your life: first yeah. heartbreak, first job crash. Yeah, you know, and, wow. And they turned. I suppose my efforts went some way to turning it round. But but it's funny, isn't it? I think Crossroads. there's a lot of there's a lot of hope in that story because I really was not in a good place, <laughs> and the idea that that was the point that led me to the rest of my career and life. It really was, you know, and it, it's an interesting one. I was staying at my mum's and dad's for a few months because I'd left London and was coming back up to Liverpool and working out what to do next. Always go home in a crisis. <laughs> and my dad was a great guy. He'd remind you of Terry Wogan in some ways, a bit rough around See, the See, my mum's dad, both Irish, arrived in Liverpool in the 50s, is that Late right? 50s, yeah, 58. Yeah. Um, and sadly, both lost to us now, but but never lost. You know, it's like, they're never yeah. lost, are they? Um but dad was funny as hell. And he was also very wise and very warm. He found me in the middle room of the house crying. 29. It's not like I'm 17 here, you know, 29. And he said, uh, 
oh, she, are you crying again? And I was going, oh, dad, you know. <laughs> and he said, now look, she, he said, how old are you? And I thought he was saying, how old are you? In that sort yeah. of rhetorical way, but he literally had forgotten how old Because he's got seven kids. <laughs> said, You're lucky he remember? remembered your name. <laughs> he said, how old are you? And I said, I know, I know. And he went, no, how old are you? <laughs> and I said, 29. <laughs> 29 and he said well if I and this is my dad talking right he said if I was 29 and had your brains and your opportunities and God love him it was my dad and your looks <laughs> he said I wouldn't be crying Sheila and I was going I know but but still intent on crying you know and he said to me honestly Sheila he said stop it now and he, it was the best it was the best sort of example I've ever had of tough love where he wasn't mean, he didn't raise his voice, anything like that. He just said, listen, enough now, enough. And he, but he did, he, he did enough just to reveal that he was a little bit sick and tired of me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> still love me, still being kind. But so that's I, enough now. But I was being a bit of a ball. Yeah. And I was, and I needed someone to tell me. And he said, enough now, Sheila. He said, listen, you know what you're going to need to do? And I said, what, what am I going to need to do? And he said, you're going to need to remember who you are. And he said, me and your mum are going out now. And then they went out. <laughs> that was it. You're going to need to remember who you are. Mm -hmm. And it's such good advice, isn't it? So at the tail end of a relationship, especially one that ends with great sadness, yeah. that's really pertinent advice because you have forgotten who you are yeah. and you have to reset. You have to remake yourself. Yeah. You're the same person, obviously, but you have to yeah. remake yourself. And I, I think it's not even about romance. I've used it so many times in my life where you just think, Okie dokie. You know, if you're just like not making a decision or you've let things yeah. slide in a particular area. Put yourself together. You're just like, hang on, who, who are you here? You know, and when when I lost mum, which was only last September, we lost mum. Last September, I, I put a little um, Instagram post up about mm. it. Just it's a good way to let people know where you're at and why you're not on air for five weeks and whatever. I looked back on it the other day and I noticed that I'd said in it because I couldn't remember at that, that point. I, I said in it... Um, how lucky I was to be hers is how I put it, is how I described mm. it. And how, the, how I'd spend the rest of my life, not much left, not much left, Kate. I, I That's not true. <laughs> no, I know. I spend the rest of my life um, trying to live up to that good fortune. And I thought, I saw it the other day and I thought. So poetic. That's, but isn't it a good choice? If you know you've been raised by fabulous people, the two bits of advice they gave me, that really stand out, you know, that really, not advice, mum wasn't so much about advice, but the the dad just said, remember remember who you are. And I come away from losing my mum thinking, I'm going to live up to her, I'm going to live up to everything she was. That's what I'm going to do. And doesn't, you know, it's, that's it, an, that, it needs a map if you've got that. That's got the map. got two bookends of great advice there, right? It's the map, isn't it? Yeah. That's the map. But all of which takes me really nicely to my next question, actually. Go on. In lockdown, you moved back to Liverpool to be with your mum. Yeah. And as you've just said, sadly, she passed away last September. September. Yeah. Not of COVID. We, no. I was like, well, we protected her from COVID. I mean, she was, she had other issues that, you know, she was 90 when she died. My goodness, a good innings. And I mean, ready as they to go, say. you know, and it's, you know. Seven children. I mean, not a patch on your great grandmother who had how many? <laughs> my dad, yeah, my dad's grandmother had 18, 18 children. I mean, that's almost I've a class. I've got a photograph of this woman. You should, she looks fantastic. You put it on Twitter. I, yeah. I zoomed in on she, she hadn't even got two Why? chins. It's like, what? When I was four and a half, 
we moved house from the house I'd lived in Anfield for the first four years of my life to the house that we are just selling, sadly, because of mum passing away. Um, and my, I'm the only one of us that went to nursery for any length of time because th they were sorting out the house and moving house, seven, six kids in school, one renegade still in the house. So they thought, well, nursery for a bit while mum sorts out the house. They moved house and forgot to collect me from nursery. <laughs> I mean, it's a numbers that? game. How's that for abandonment <laughs> issues? And I'll never forget it. Whenever I tell the story at Christmas, <laughs> mum would be like, ah, Sheila Dill. She never lived it down, abandoning me as a small child. So, I mean, this time that you had in the pandemic, mm. back home, broadcasting from your mum's bedroom. My bedroom. My yeah, childhood yeah, bedroom. Yeah, your, your childhood yeah. bedroom. My sister-in-law, by the way, printed off for me posters of uh, Starsky and Hutch, the police. You'll love this one. Starsky and Hutch, the police, Donny Osmond, and can you guess the last one? No. Good Catholic girl. Uh, the Pope? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you're joking me. Pope John Paul II, one, oh. of, my, one of my heroes. One of the all-time favourites. One of the all-time favourites. <laughs> well, he was in some, in some charts. Yeah. yeah. So you, you go back home to broadcast and to care for your mum. And I I'd imagine, you know, these were unknown times, unprecedented. Yeah. But fundamentally, you're there because, you know, you want to keep her safe. Yeah. And with the hindsight that you have now, this was precious, right? These were gold bars I knew, I in terms of your memory. I knew even then it was, yeah. yeah. And, you know, uh, my... Brother Liam lived around the corner, so the two of us split the carry. So when I was on air, he, he would come in. But the others, once we could, you know, the others would come It wouldn't have well. been allowed. No, they'd come to the window and wave and stand by the kitchen door. It was terrible, really. And mum would start to think they died. And, you know, this is the kind of pressure people were under, which is why the party gate thing makes my blood boil. But I, I knew, you know, even though I was doing three hours solid every day, and as I said earlier, taking lots of, you know, distressed calls and things, mm. um, I my colleagues would say to me from time to time, you know, you're okay, but a bit intense what you're doing, you know? And I said, I'm absolutely fine. And I was fine. And I was fine because I had my job and lots of people didn't. And I was where I needed, where I wanted to be to keep my mum safe and that. So I had, I, you know, I had I everything right. I needed at yeah. that phase, really. It, it was intense. And, and I'd sometimes just, you know, flop on the bed and think, oh my God, what am I doing? so tiring, you know, but, but, you know, it wasn't just me doing it, but it was, um, but I was living with mum and it was, but it was so nice. You're absolutely right to say it was precious because I was going up a lot anyway. Most weekends I was there and holidays and things, but it was so precious because we just, we just kind of hunkered down together, you know, and it was a bit like being, it, well, obviously there were different dynamics of play, but it's a bit like being flatmates and housemates. Mm. And we'd have, we'd have a giggle and, you know, she had tough times because of the physical stuff she was going through. And so I'd deal with, I'd help her with that emotionally. And, you know, and it was an emotional time, but utterly magical as well. It enabled you to probably say all the things you needed to say, totally. do all the, laugh at all the jokes that you needed to, to revisit. Yeah. Be there. It was a full stop that so, so many, many people were denied and in the you pandemic. you know what? I hugged her about 85,000 times a day. And I, because before they said the word bubble, we were in a bubble, you know, and I just got so much time to hug her and squeeze her and love her and I love her and do her hair. <laughs> I became the hairdresser. I wasn't that bad. When I first did, you know, the, the, you know, when you put like 90 rollers in a in yeah. old lady's hair, that style, that's all I can do. If you ever want a set, that, I'm your woman. A set. A set. I used it, to yeah. do those in my Auntie Jill's salon yeah. I couldn't believe and then I brush them out, it. but it stays all day. <laughs> So Margaret Thatcher kept her so big and it's high. It's true, it's true. Set in lotion. But I still love like, the smell of you it. My hair and I say, oh, well, oh, well. But those are difficult times, but precious times. And Incredibly. I wondered, yeah. when else great difficulties have turned into great treasures for you? 
gosh, that's a tough one. Just because there's so, you know, there's so many examples in life, aren't the way you just think, right, how am I going to manage this? How am I going to handle this? But something that turned out to be a gift, well, actually that, you know, what I've just described with mum, without a doubt, has taught me a huge amount. I, I never had a burning desire to have children. I never had a burning desire not to have children. You know, I was, I'm quite Ambivalent? No, I didn't even have ambivalence about it. I Indifference? Just, yeah, kind of. I just, it's not even, I love kids and I've got loads of nieces and nephews and a couple of godchildren, a few godchildren, and I adore them, you know, I'd do anything for them. It was just, I think I'm just a bit of a sort of, oh, that next and that next and that's interesting and that's interesting. The idea of settling down and having a family, it was no driver. It didn't, it was not a driver of mine. Too much of a butterfly. In my 20s. A bit, yeah, I think so. And it's never really stopped. So I never felt the clock ticking. I never thought, God, am I doing this right? Or, you know, because, and I think I'm just one of, I, I'm just naturally interested in being alive and living so if it involves children great if it involves husbands great well not two obviously well not at the same time anyway uh, you know if it involves those things fine and if it doesn't also, also fine, fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah live just live yeah 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 and so that's been my uh, that was always my approach to, to kids it wasn't even an approach to kids it's an approach to life in which yeah. that was inevitably but it's an interesting one because there are so many ways in which life tells you you should do x y or z it's not just about motherhood and it's not even just for women either it's men i just think if we could all just take a breath and say what am i interested in what do well, i yeah, want well, to do? What, what pursuing what you think is what is drives me prescribed for you by society as opposed to what, yeah. actually, what makes your heart beat right yeah yeah and also if you fall in love and your heart beats and you want to have a baby with somebody Great. and had that happened i'd have gone for it like a shot yeah. but it's it just wasn't that order yeah. for me you know what i mean so it's never bothered me but what did bother me was by the time I was about, I don't know, late 30s, maybe mid 30s, lots of people, almost exclusively women, and some friends as well, would really quiz me on it. And it really fucked me off when they did that. And I'd like, I'd be like, I'm sorry, when I walk through a door, do you just see the absence of a baby or do yeah. you see me? You know, what, what is it you're seeing when I walk through the door here, you know? And it, for, for a brief period, it really got on my nerves. And I'd go to like, I went to a christening once and I was holding a baby. <laughs> At a christening, not unknown, um, a friend's baby while they were having their pictures taken. And uh, a woman came up to me. She, you know, we were just chatting, mingling, a perfectly nice woman. And she, she asked a perfectly normal question. She said, oh, is this your little girl? And I said, no, oh, no, I wish. This is, I was being nice about little Bella and da, 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 da. And she said to me, oh, do you have children? Also a normal question. I don't, I don't, there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. That's a normal question. And I said, no, I don't actually. And she went, oh, like, oh. Your life must be terrible. And Pity. I, Did she cock her head to one side? Oh, like totally. A, like yeah, a screw the nose thing. up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and a you know, I, nose. I spoke to Jane Fallon about this, you know, the author Jane yes. Fallon. I was interviewing her once and we, we were talking about this issue. And I said, <coughs> the woman at the christening said to me, oh, so it went from a nice normal conversation to, oh, dear, is your life shit? And, <laughs> and I just said, actually, I just, I couldn't stand it anymore. I'd had like six months of this nonsense. So I just said, God love this woman. She didn't mean any harm. But I just said, um, I did have two, actually. And then she went, oh. And you could see this horror in her face, like, oh, my God, what happened to the die? What happened to the kids? And I said, reaching for my wine, I said, social services took them off me. <laughs> and then, and that began a, a short, thankfully short, psychotic period of doing my level best to make people who asked me those questions as uncomfortable as possible. <laughs> And when I Touché. told Jane Fallon this, she was like, oh, I'm including that in the book. I said, feel free. Feel free. <laughs> Have it. Get the message out there. Leave us fuck alone. I think it's good that women can now say they don't want them. That, that was never That's my okay. thing. Mine was just like, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna live and see where it takes me. That's my approach yeah. to these things. And a bit of a hippie on the quiet, I suppose. Are people that insensitive still that they come in and they crash in with those sort of questions, Sheila? They've stopped now with because my they've decided my ovaries are a non-starter. But I think you ask most 35 plus year old women who don't have kids how often people ask them about it. I'll bet it's loads still. Yeah. But that phase of life added to the time I had with my mum, you know, this very yes. meaningful time I had with my mum. I did have, and I'm hoping to write about it. I'm not ready to, as I, when I say I'm not ready, I mean, I haven't quite formulated it properly in my mind because it's in my heart still rather than in my mind. Um, I, I did have a real sort of, oh, what's it, like a sort of resolution in my mind about um, how how all of that connects, all of that question of what we do with our life, whether we be, for women, whether we become a mother or not, what it is to be a mother. And my mother was some mother and had seven kids, as we've said a few times. Um, she was an extraordinary mother. You know, she really was, but in a very light touch way. And, and because of the generation she was from in Ireland, the country she was from, the generation she was from, you got married... You, if you if you were fertile enough to have kids, you had lots of kids. That was just yeah. that was the deal, you know. And I was in, in one of my brother's wedding speeches once. They they were reading the litany of you know, mum and dad came here in 1950. There's six kids. So she was born in 1966, and then they got a telly, as though that was the. <laughs> you know? But um, but she, ex I, I was just thinking at the towards the end of her life, you know, she she took everything. She had much fewer choices than you or I would have had in our life. And she took everything as it came and in her stride. And, you know, and that was child after child after child after mm. child for seven years. And dad, you know, he had to keep those kids alive as well, you know. Yeah, and, and fed. And clothes. fed and clothed and all the rest of it. I mean, it really, she really is of that Irish Catholic tradition. And, and that, you know, that bit in the Bible where it says, you, you never hear the only words... Um, the Virgin Mary says in the Bible is about the wine, you know, go and, go and get some more wine. I rather like. Um, <laughs> you, you're girl. the Virgin Mary of the podcast world, yeah. And um, But but they would often say, you know, she pondered these things in her heart, you know, this is in the Bible. And I'd say to my mum when I was a kid and knew nothing, I'd say to mum, when I say kid, I was like teenager, I'd say, what's all this th business about Our Lady not ever uh, never saying anything and pondering everything in her heart but not saying it, not saying anything. Like a mute yeah, yeah. And I was like, I was seeing it through that really harsh feminist perspective, if you see what I mean. I'm yeah. not saying feminism is harsh, you know what I mean? Cl sort of clean lines. And mum would just say, you don't always have to say everything, Sheila. <laughs> and I was like, have you met me? And <laughs> you gave birth to me, have you met me? But she'd say, you know, people don't always have to say everything that's on their mind, you know. And then as things, you know, and then I, over the years, obviously I wasn't actively observing her, if you see what I mean. But over the years observing her, and then certainly in these last few years I've realized that what she did and it's so counterintuitive to me because I am a talker you know <laughs> I'm a real talker everything she said landed because she had pondered it in her heart first you know when it came to the raising of her kids I mean and their marriages she most adored mother-in-law on the planet because she didn't interfere or she understood that where the lines were drawn you know <clears throat> and I think that much time spent with her in these last few years, and also, I suppose, my own maturity as well, has just taught me that there are, for all the noise in this world at the moment, and there's a lot of it, mm. I'm making quite a bit of it myself, you know, that actually we've got to find space in between all that noise 
to ponder these things in our heart and to just really work out what you want to say and why, you know. But I said right at the beginning of this show, I think you're one of our most considered broadcasters because that is how I hear you, Sheila. Is it? I don't think that's that my mum coming through. Yeah, there. and I that's think that's mom. exactly it, right? Is that you probably think you say a lot, but I think actually you may well say a lot, but what you say is very considered, and um, yeah, I'd, maybe I'd, it brush it rubbed off in the end, yeah, inadvertently. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's yeah. there. So very, very much your mother's daughter. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. that respect, and my dad's in that. Yeah, gabbing away. As my dad used to say on my headstone, it would say, too busy talking. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. It's okay. No. <laughs> my final question to you. Go on. You are thrust into partnerships with people on air yes. where you have to become professional friends. Yeah. And I, I talked about this again recently with, we had Carol McGiffin on the show and mm. how we were f f kind of professional friends that grew into genuine mates. Mm. Right. And I learned a lot from being forced to get along with people that would have otherwise sat outside my tribe. Yeah. You've worked with some incredible people yeah. across the years. Yeah. Who have the, been the biggest teachers? What have been the biggest kind of values and takeouts from those enforced professional friendships? Yeah. Are you talking um, about on-air friendships? Anything. Any but yeah, but you know, even if it's working with a producer, it's just yeah. somebody that brings, brings something to the table that mm. otherwise would not be there in your world. Well, more than anyone, Nicky Campbell. More than anyone. I mean, he, I knew he was, because when I first started to broadcast at Five Live, it would have been year 2000, pretty much. You were just a job in freelancer then, weren't you? Yeah, I'd, I'd only just left my staff job at the BBC, came down to London, big brave girl. And and actually what I was doing was having another go because the professional crash, car crash that coincided with the romance car crash when I was 29 uh, felt to me like a failure. It wasn't, as it turned out. It was just an event, you know. But yeah. And I thought, I've got to go back and give that another go. And, and this was the way I did it, by going back and freelancing as a presenter. I just had unfinished business, you know, and I was right. I did have unfinished business because I've never left. So there you go. And um, so I hadn't I had hardly done anything on air at Five Live. And I stood in on this, forgive me if any Five Livers are listening, ludicrous program that sat for 40 minutes in the middle of Nikki's brilliant three hour program in the morning. Pretty sure I got the gig temporarily because I could pronounce the names of all the foreign newspapers, like the Deutsche Zeitung, the German one. But my favourite was Corriere della Sera. I just suddenly became Gina Lollobrigida when I said that. Italiano. So, so but the, the presenter at the time said to me, Nicky, I didn't know Nicky at all. I mean, I knew him on air and, you know, as a person, but as a personality, but I didn't know him. And he said, Nicky hates this. He hates this programme. So good luck. <laughs> Great. Brilliant. Yeah. Amazing. And why wouldn't he hate it? If somebody said to me now in the middle of my programme, we're going to stop at 20 to 2 or at 10, whatever, it's quarter past 2 and until 3 o'clock we're going to do a programme about Brussels. I'd be like, oh, nice try. Give it a go. See what the callers make of it. Nicky surprises people because he gets a terrible bad rap sometimes from people, I think. And I always, literally always found him to be pitch perfect with me and just brilliant to work alongside but this was the first day I ever did and um did my did my European thing <laughs> I said foreign names a bit and uh I would leave at 11 o'clock that would be the end of it and then he'd finish his program 
And during the news, he's, and he did keep his head down quite a lot while I was doing it. Why wouldn't he? Just probably prepping for his own things. And then he said to me at 11 o'clock, bear in mind, we never met until that day. And he said, uh, he said, listen, would you stay on for 15 minutes? I've got an interview coming up. And he said, it's quite strange. He said, it's about a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a book written by a woman who's had an, a miscarriage and she has written it in the voice of the child that she's lost. Oh. And he said, and I don't know whether it's a good, I've read it. And he said, and I can't work out whether it's good and interesting spiritually and personally, or whether it's just a bit off. I can't work it out. He said, I think a woman in the room would be really helpful as well. So feel free to join in on the interview. So I said, okay, great. So I did. And it was, it, the book was, I mean, I, I read the book subsequently, but the woman was made perfect sense about how she was describing this, this voice she would never hear, this child she would never know. So I just liked him and I thought, yeah, I really like working with you. I like that moment of working with you. Yeah. A couple of days later, did it again. And do you remember the day of the uh, full solar eclipse where we all went outside and went, oh, it's gone cold. And God, then it yeah, was fine that was again. Years ago, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, 20, well, 2000, year 2000. Oh, my God, 22 yeah, years ago. Go. depressing. And um, I was thinking more like I five did, or six. <laughs> I did Euro News, right? And he hated it, obviously. And we were, you know, we were accustomed to each other by this point. And he said to me... <laughs> He said to me just before the news, tell you what, because and we were talking about the eclipse at midday, you know, coming up at midday and it was 11 now. And he said, tell you what, Sheila, why don't you stay? I'll go downstairs with everybody else and watch the eclipse and you can have your big break and present the rest of my program. And, da, da, da. and I just said, talk about cheek. I said, don't need my big break that badly. I'm going to go and watch the universal solar eclipse, if that's all right. And off I went, to, you know, and he he took it well um and he missed the eclipse and i'm out there loving it and uh, <laughs> and i thought no work that's some no money yeah with a friend <laughs> no screw you i don't need a big break you know <laughs> i did by the way but i actually think my biggest break was four years later when i started to present with him full time because i'd stood in a lot for victoria derbyshire at that point so nikki and i had established a rapport and he used to make me die laughing. Well, he does make me die laughing still because we're very, like you and Carol, we've got a French, a real friendship. Out it of goes the beyond, yeah, the show, yeah. But he's such a good broadcaster. He could turn anything into a decent bit of radio, I think. And more than a decent bit of radio. I used to have to send him out of the studio sometimes because I couldn't read out loud without laughing. Isn't that and great? Yeah, we had such a hoot. And he's also very, very kind, really kind man. So. I think it's special sometimes, especially when you don't know what to expect no, it's 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 kind of like pass parcel professionally. It is. You just keep unlayering and I mean, unwrapping. I won't name them, but I've had a few where I've thought, "Get me out of this room!" Oh my god, that was hard work. You know, yeah. Where and, and there really is something, but you can't get on with everybody. No, you, you just can't. can't. You can't. I mean, I don't. You've worked with some pretty big characters. I mean, Andrew Neil. You worked with Andrew just as he came out of newspapers, where he was, yeah, you know, king of the news room you know yeah. the floor responded to him it's the editor and of the I Sunday knew even Times. then he knew where the bodies were buried yeah. many of them you know mm. and I mean he was you know I was very young when I did that and you know and he was clearly much more much the more experienced person and he didn't lord that over me or anything he was pleasant enough to present with for sure Nick Robinson I used to do weekend yeah. breakfast with him he was he was great to, to, to work alongside I had um at, at uh, LBC, I've done two royal broadcasts with Nick Ferrari. Ah, oh, I used to work with oh, Nick. Oh, he's so good. And he <laughs> was his moment during. He's a lovely man. Oh, yeah. And, and, and a great journalist. Proper journalist, proper broadcaster. And there was a moment during the Harry and uh, Meghan's wedding. I love a royal wedding. I don't know whether I've ever bored you about this. Love a royal wedding. 
you know how beautiful Windsor Castle is, and there was this mm. beautiful scene because we we were we were on the the what's it called the long walk, long yeah, walk, the long walk, long walk, and <clears throat> we had a TV screen in front of us, and there was this gorgeous uh, television shot through the archway um, into Windsor Great Park. I can't remember what was coming through the archway or anything, but it was just such a beautiful shot. And I just said to, <laughs> I was talking to Nick about whatever, and I just went, "Oh, look at that!" And he just. T tapped me on the arm and went, you're on the radio, Shields. You've got to tell them what you're looking at. <laughs> I was so immersed in it all. And Lost go, yourself. Oh, look at the carriages, look at the dress, look at the bride, look at the groom. Oh, isn't that lovely? Look at that. And he's like, tell people what you're looking at, Sheila. And I was going, oh, yeah. Talking rule, pictures. Rule 101. <laughs> so, yeah, that was good fun. So, yeah. What have these people taught you, do you think? Because I, I, I don't believe that you can work with anybody in that intense environment that you do in broadcast, yeah. especially live broadcast, yeah. and not be impacted by them one way or another. Well, with can I say about Nikki, I think, because yeah. he has definitely had the biggest impact. I'd come from straight down the line news journalism, and he'd come from entertainment. I I still had, I mean, I'd done a bit of presenting at Radio Merseyside, but, and, and I was probably a fairly, I'm probably a bit too lazy to be anything other than my authentic self when I'm on the radio. I'm just me on the radio, you know? How do you create a persona? I don't know. I don't think you can fake I don't it think, for that. Not for, for three hours it's a day. It's so intimate, isn't it? You just yeah. can't. So uh, whatever, it was me. I'm not saying I knew nothing when I started working with Nikki. That's not true. But I, I certainly had a lot of style development to go. And by that, I mean working, just as I've done at LBC, working out what to keep, working out what to drop. And then you just naturally shed skins without noticing yeah. really in, in a yeah. relationship on air, don't you? And But what I saw with Nikki, and sometimes it was very deliberate. I was seeing how he did it. And other times it's just by osmosis when you broadcast with somebody. He is so fluent in how he moves from moves gear. He can change gear so brilliantly. And and I was in one gear, but I was in, I was in news gear, yeah. you know? And quite quickly working with him, even in those little early days of doing um, Euronews, I, I learned to just relax a little. Soften your edges. Exactly. Yeah. And Nicky was the perfect partner to do that with because he was so, he has so many gears that he can go into on air. And it allowed me to go into those gears as, or to, into my version of those gears as well. So, Do you yeah. miss working alongside somebody? Because I've, I've had a bit of both as of you. Yeah. And um, I'm happiest when I'm shoulder to shoulder with somebody, I think. I, would you know, I when I first did... When I went solo, because I did two years on a, on the midday show at Five Live after leaving breakfast, because I was just knackered on breakfast, and Nikki's never forgiven me. <laughs> and now I'm on air every day on my own, but I'm not because the listeners are your co-presenters, really. They are. They are, aren't they? I mean, because my I'm constantly in conversation with my either my mostly my listeners or a, a guest, so you kind of, in a way, have that co-presenting yeah. person there as well. So yeah, but I did definitely miss the. I was constantly looking yeah. for where he was. What I have got and I'm still getting from my LBC program is just my program to make of it what I want. Mm. And I have to say they were brilliant. When I first got there, I was still very much a BBC creature in terms of my muscles, you know. And they gave me the time. I'm sure I frustrated them with the time I took, but they gave me the time to just find my way mm. into that way of broadcasting you know Hillsborough they you know they they saw what the, what you described on that day and I remember that my my producer at the time said uh, do you want me to get you a guest on that the story just broke and he said do you want me to get you a guest on that and I said no I do not need a guest on this and it was the first time I'd ever gone no open the mic and I'll do it yeah. because I, ha I really had something I wanted to save me up well and and that's what they that's what 
LBC hired me for really, you know, and, but it takes a while to get to that space where you're just saying, right, here I am. This is mine. Yeah. And this is what I'm going to do with it. So. And you, you know, you're a really important voice at LBC. You're also um, a rare female voice at LBC. I hope that that's something that yeah. is balanced in the years to come. Yeah. Not, not that I want boxes ticked, but um, that's, I think that's changing. That's I think changing. you're proof that that three hours of conversation can be stained by somebody wearing a bra. Girls can do it. Girls can do it. We can, Absolutely. you know. Absolutely. Yeah. We can. We're yeah. quite good at chatting. Yeah. Say so girls can do it. Women can do it. You know, what's lovely about LBC is that Nick will have particular conversations with his listeners that are about them. They've called him. Yeah. So that they won't, that they're not looking for a conversation with me at that time. They're looking for no. a conversation with him. Yeah. And when they call me, because they want to talk to me. You know, I love listening to you, Sheila. I look, I look for, if I jump in the car and it's between one and four, I'm like, oh, brilliant, Sheila's on. So good for my ego. Honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. I was almost frightened to ask you to come on the show don't in case... In case, in case like, I don't do socials. Well, no, and just in case <laughs> we didn't get on as well as I hoped we would. Oh, no, it's And lovely. you've been everything I'd hoped for. So and I'm really you. not trying to be a mystery online, so let's see. Well, let's see if Put we Put this can... out there, see what happens. Exactly. See what happens. But cheers and Thank continued you. success in all that you do. Yeah. Uh, my huge thanks to Sheila. And Thank if you're in the mood for more brilliant conversations with some great fellow radio heads we've got a back catalogue heaving with them uh, with the likes of uh, David Lammy MP Simon Mayo Chris Moyles Gabby Roslin's in there Craig Charles Reverend Kate Botley Anita Rani Dave Berry Nikki Chapman I mean I could go on but I won't White Wine Question Time is produced by me Kate Thornton with Ben Robbins and the Yahoo Studios team and our music is as always by Andy Bell whose new solo record Glock has just topped the dance charts take that Andy Bell we'll be back next week with more great guests until then my thanks to you as always for listening in